Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. The sermon title this morning is The Humility of Christ, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll do a little bit of a summary from last week, and then we'll get into our passage today. Lord Jesus, we need help, we need direction and wisdom in all that we do. So help us as we hear from you, we want to hear and respond, hear and respond. So help us to hear what you have to say and respond in prayer and worship today. I pray that there's areas that we're struggling that this text addresses today. I pray that you would bring the truth of the fact that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that you would set our feet once again on solid ground and Holy Spirit, you would help us to walk out of here and then change, to walk in repentance, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that we would obey and that you would help us to do that. We trust you're going to lead in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, grace brings humility. That's what grace does. We talked about grace last week. We talked about that it's been granted to us that for the sake of Christ, that not only should you should believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. For the sake of Christ, faith has been granted. This is what grace does. It brings humility in a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. That's what we looked at. And when you know that you're in Christ... Because of God's grace and God's grace alone, it helps you to break down the areas of pride that you still have. When you know you're in Christ because God chose you and gave you faith to believe, pride gets demolished. It's the great wrecking ball to pride. That's what grace is. It's like a literal wrecking ball that comes and you've got these walls of pride in your life and God's grace just crashes into it and tears it down. When you know that it was because of the God of the universe that you have been born again, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Peter says, it changes you, it helps you, it helps you become a humble man or a woman. When you know that I'm a Christian because Jesus saved me, he came to me, it wasn't that I came to him, we're changed. His love changed me, my love did not change him. That brings humility. Grace tears down pride. The doctrine of election does this. God chose you, you personally, you with a name, you with flesh and bone, you with a brain, you with a heart. He chose you because of nothing inside of you, but because of what's inside of him. He chose you because he loved you. He just simply loved you and he chose you. Even though you were a sinner, even though you rebelled against him, even though before you were born or done anything good or bad, he set his particular love and affection on you. And it's because of that fact that he granted you the faith to believe in him. You were a forgiven man, washed clean, clean and purified and forgiven because of what God has done for you and his mercy that has come to you. And it's because of no action of yourself. It's because of the action of God. This news is so wonderful that we are so changed that we're willing, like we saw last week, to suffer joyfully for the sake of Christ. When you know what God has done for you, it makes you willing to even suffer for his name and do so in a joyful manner. You become a weirdo to the world, a peculiar people. How in the world do you walk down a city street, jumping up and down, thank you, I'm counted worthy to suffer for his sake. It's amazing. Grace is amazing. It makes prideful people humble. It leads to that humility, and we're going to see that this morning. Humility, a humble people. Not a weak people, not a self-loathing people, a humble people. It changes us. Look at verse 1 in chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, 
any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. We have four rhetorical statements, and we're supposed to respond to each one of these statements with a resounding yes. Okay, is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes, absolutely. When you remember Christ, what Christ has done for you, you come to these tables, you walk through the, or come to the table, or you come to the fellowship, and you walk through those red doors, which symbolize the very blood of Christ, and in here you find a place, if you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation whatsoever. Let me just ask you, is that encouraging? It's encouraging. So is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes. Is there any comfort from love? When you know you're loved, is there comfort? Or as Ryan Deaton likes me to say it, comfort. He hates how I say the word comfort. There's comfort from love. What about participation in the Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit just for some people in the church, or is the Holy Spirit for all of God's people? It's for all of God's people. You are a Spirit-led people. You have the Spirit of God within you. Um, there, if anybody does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ within you. And there is participation in that Spirit. He gifts us all. He encourages us all. Empowers us all. The Holy Spirit of God is at work in all of us. Is there any affection and sympathy? Let me ask you this. Is there affection as you look to the left and the right and the front and behind you? Is there affection for the people of God? Or is there sympathy for the hurting? And I think for all of those, we say a resounding yes. If we know somebody in this church is hurting or suffering, there's sympathy there. There's love there. We want to comfort them. We want to help them. We have affection for them. Uh, this is one of the most affectionate group of people I've ever met. A group of people who really love it. Have you ever been a part of small groups in the past where you just like really hope that they cancel? <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you're like, you're all acting sad that it got canceled, but really you're just excited that it did. <laughs> and it's not like that. You know, we, we love our small group. We love getting together. We love spending time with each other. Because there's affection, there's sympathy. We love each other. And so if all those things are true, and it's this, this resounding yes to all those things, then Paul's like, okay, if those things are true, then these are true as well. Then do this. If that's a resounding yes, then, verse 2, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in the full accord and of one mind. Four things. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, same love, full accord, and one mind. In short, unity. Be unified. Complete my joy. Um, the Apostle Paul receives joy when the people of God, when the church in Macedonia and the church of Christ, Christ Carbondale walks in unity. When we are unified. Now, there are two paths to unity. He wants them to have real unity, not false unity. And there really is a difference. Uh, false unity is seen in churches all across this land. And it's seen in communities just like ours. And it would be seen here when we believe that the black and the white, truth and error, just fades to gray. When there's no absolutes. When there's no hills to die on. False unity happens when people believe the Bible isn't really that clear. False unity can happen when we all just agree to not offend each other. When we all just agree that there's no real truth to rally around. False unity 
happens all over the place. It doesn't address sin because it's all about keeping people functionally happy or at least appearing happy. That's what we call fakeness. That's what we call false unity. False unity abounds in the world as well. In a culture of tolerance, false unity is everywhere. It's not real tolerance. It's not real unity. False unity does not want to rock the boat with the Bible. And in fact, false unity avoids the Bible because it ends up saying that the Bible is what brings division. So you can't get too doctrinal, you can't get too theological, you can't get real deep in the scriptures, you can't, you can't speak about that scripture because then it will bring discord. And that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul wants them to actually have unity, real unity, real walking in one accord, really have unity of mind. He wants this for the church in Macedonia, for the church in Philippi, the region of Macedonia. Real unity in contrast with false unity, is around the Bible. It's around God's Word. You're unified around truth. The expectation is that everybody is going to rally around what God has to say. Now, certainly, there's going to be some differences in nitty-gritty details, nitty-ditty greetails, uh, about specific Bible verses. Of course, we're going to have different takes on a few things, but the whole goal is that we would be unified in truth, not unified in suppressing the truth. Real unity calls out falsehood in love and in humility and with a backbone. Now, one of the things the New Testament regularly does, um, and I think that this is a, a good way to think through what this unity can look like in a local church, the, the Bible regularly connects the home and the church. And so we see this in 1 Timothy, we see this in Titus, we see this with Jesus and the bride, this metaphor of a household. Um, the Bible says that an elder has to be a good manager of his household because if he can't manage the household well, how's he going to manage the church? There's this comparison of the home and the church, and the church is made up of households. Now, we may not have children, you might not even be married, but the church as a whole is made up of households. And so there's this comparison, there's this, okay, it, it, there's, there's similarities between what happens in a home and what happens with the church, with the people of God. And in marriage, Jordan and I are one flesh. We're united in one flesh. That's what the, 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 the Bible teaches when it comes to marriage is that we're not just two individuals. We're somehow miraculously, according to Ephesians chapter 5, we're made into the two becoming one flesh. This is what the garden tells us about marriage is that two people in the covenant marriage with God doing the ceremony connects them in a way that makes them one flesh. And that's a profound mystery. And it mirrors Christ in the church. And so when we have a disagreement, when we have discord, what we don't do is just ignore it, act like it's not there, so we can keep smiling at each other. Jordan and I are not good at that. I mean, I, I, know, I know that you're, I'm the meek and mild one, and she is fiery, let me tell you. <laughs> Vicky. We're one flesh, so we strive to be united in all things. It requires conversations. It requires, at times, wrestling with passages. And I'll tell you, even recently, she's been talking to me about the Lord's Day and, and certain things um, that we have disagreed on in the past about the Christian Sabbath and, and the details of that and what that would look like. And we've just been having conversations about this. And I tell you, my wife challenges me, and it's a good thing. And she submits to me. We... As a household, work through these things together, and she'll come, 
And it requires submission to God's word. It requires the husband to lead. It requires the wives to follow. And church unity, if there's going to be church unity, it's going, to re- it's going to model what happens in the home. If there's home unity, it requires a leader. It requires follower. It requires gathering around the word. So it goes in the church. Okay, so church unity requires submission to the word. It requires the leadership of shepherds and pastors, like the home requires the leadership of the men, of the husbands, and the followership of the church, as well as we all follow Jesus. So we don't gossip and slander. We have conversations around the word, and we fight to agree. We don't talk about each other. We talk to each other, and we fight for church unity rather than disunity. And if we disagree with each other on a particular passage or some thing in the word or how we approach something in the word, well, we're at least going to understand each other. We're not going to caricaturize each other. We're not going to build straw man and then slander the straw, straw man. We're going to understand each other and we're going to work together because the rallying point is what the word of God has to say. And we're going to submit to God's word together. Gossip is the default of the world. Slander is the de- default of the world. We have conversations around the word and we agree. Unity is the default of the church. And I love the unity that we share. I really do. Um, One of the reasons I love going through books of the Bible, I hope this has been the case with you over the last five years, uh, and other churches obviously go through the Bible as well and preach through books of the Bible, but one of the reasons that I love preaching through books like this is that it requires me to change personally. Like It requires my theology to change and get in line with what the Word of God has to say. And I think it's probably true, not just with me. I've had to change over the last five years on several things. It, most recently, about deacons in a local church. I told you guys that when we were going through the, the beginning part with overseers and deacons. That, that deacons being the default of even small churches, not just large churches, in the city of Jerusalem. So I had to change. Um, I hope you've had to change. I hope that there's been some shaping and reshaping of your theology over the last several years as we've been going through books of the Bible. I mean, as the people of God, shouldn't we, I mean, gladly lay down our preferences and just be able to say easily, you know what, I was wrong on this issue, and God's word is changing me. It should be the default of all of us to where our rallying point is around the word where we don't have a chip on our shoulder trying to prove some theological point. We're able to say, you know what, I I see where you're coming from. I I might see that a little bit differently, but I see where you're coming from, from those passages. And I'm not there, but I understand you. We're we're unified. We're not slandering. We're not gossiping. And so I hope all of us have been to that point where we've had to be shaped and molded and changed by the word of God. Now, unity is a call to action as well. We're unified. We're together in this. We're having the same love, being the full accord and of one mind. But then there's an action step. There's action to unity. And that's what we see in verses 3 and 4. Look at this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Unity has feet. There's wheels to it. There's a call to action. Do nothing. So, when, okay, what? do nothing what? Do, okay. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Whoa. Um, the motives of almost everybody in the world, the default motive of, of humanity is to do everything from selfish ambition and conceit. That's the default inside of us that we're born from. Conniving, weaseling our way into getting what we want, 
or doing something to be seen by others. I mean, that's just the default of the human condition. And then when we're born again, the Holy Spirit of God inside of us, we're changed from the inside out. And we have to wrestle with that our entire lives. Is anybody at the point in their life yet they can say that I do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit? It's an ongoing war. It's an ongoing battle. And we have a command here that is going to take a lifetime to obey. And are we sure hearing, we're hearing a command here. These are our marching orders. So this week, we know what we're going to try to do by the grace of God. Okay, I don't want to do anything from selfish ambition. If God told me to not do it, then it's better for me to not do it. It's going to be better for me and my life and the life of the people around me if I stop living my life for selfish ambition or out of conceit or pride. So this week, God, I'm going to pray, put it on my prayer list. God, show me the areas that I'm living and being motivated by selfish ambition or pride or conceit and help me to lay that down. And instead, we're told an action to do. Instead, count others more significant than yourself. And do this in humility. Don't just look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. Now, when we're talking about interests... When we're talking about selfish ambition or conceit, we're getting to the area of the heart called uh, about motive, why we do what we do. It's not just an action. We can't just look at actions because two people can do the same action, one being motivated by selfish ambition and the other being motivated by wanting to, to do, uh, look at the interest of others. But it's the same action. And if we just judge by external appearances, just judge by the action itself, we don't get to the heart. And if you only judge by your actions and don't get to the issues underneath why we do what we do, then you can keep doing things externally and become a shell of a person just like the Pharisees were. Now, Christians can't ever be Pharisees because they're categorically different, but we can do religion externally, okay, obedience, what looks like obedience, but do it with a wrong motive. So we're to not look at the interest, we're to look at the interest of others. So um, why we do, okay, the, the daily lifelong goal of laying down selfish ambition and conceit and taking up ourselves is a noble pursuit. Taking up interests of others is a noble pursuit. And we know in this pursuit, this lifelong battle, that we're going to have ups and downs and we're going to have some people in our body that does this a little bit better than others. We're going to have season in seasons in which uh, it's a little bit easier to lay down selfish ambition and pride. Think about when your children are very young. Your children have a way of, I mean, you're wiping bottoms, you're taking care of puke. Uh, I remember one time we were walking down the hallway and in our old house and Ransom was just projectile vomiting. And it was quite remarkable, actually. I mean, if it was on video camera, it would have won some awards. And I was carrying him down the hallway, and it just continued, just the whole hallway. It was just, you know, the whole hallway. And it got down into the cracks of the laminate flooring, so I had to get a rag, a miracle rag, which I, I still don't know what's miraculous about a miracle rag. It really doesn't do a whole lot of soaking up, and it doesn't do a whole lot. It just pushes your wife's hair around, you know what I mean, and doesn't actually pick it up. And uh, you get a little knife, and I was, you know, getting that throw up out, and it just has a way of humbling you, you know, like, I love my children, I love them, it's totally worth it, but right now, I'm cleaning up puke in the middle of a crack in a floor. Um, you take care of your children. When you're a mom and you're nursing, uh, nursing mothers are warriors that God has empowered to do amazing things, really. 
It has a way of bringing humility. Um, so there's going to be seasons in which God is working in your life and you, you don't have time for selfish ambition. You're just not thinking about, like, what are the awesome things that I'm going to do today? And then there's seasons in life where that comes and, and, and you're trying to wrestle. Is that godly ambition or is that selfish ambi ambition? And, you know, you're introspecting yourself to death. You're like, I, don't, I just don't know. I don't know if I'm doing this for God's glory or my glory. I just don't know. God, help me. But God calls us to this. He calls us to ask those questions and to pursue just live for the good of others. Don't live for your own sake and your own glory. Live for the good of others. It includes laying down what we prefer for what others prefer. Count them more significant than you count yourself. Again, these are hard. What do you think about yourself? Okay? Think about the person in front of you as somebody that's more significant than you. What do they prefer? And that's hard. That's hard. Because I have preferences. I have things that I want to go a certain way. My preference is when we go home, we're going to eat our food together, and everybody would take a nap, and I would sit, and I would watch 30 to 45 minutes of hunting public, take a power nap, and read my book with no interruptions. And Sunday afternoons, you know, we get this little window, and, you know, either way, if it goes that way, praise the Lord. If it doesn't, I want to put their interests ahead of mine, count them more significant than myself. And I tell you what, that's a lifelong work, and I think all you have to, to do to realize it's a lifelong work is just ask yourself right now how you're doing at that. No matter where you're at in your Christian walk, how you're doing at that. And if your answer is, doing pretty great at that, well then, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So you better check yourself before you wreck yourself there. Um, now, it's interesting because we are called to do this. These are marching orders. This is what we're to do, okay, is, is look at this. But also, Jesus did this, and, and this is really crucial. We see that it's not just we are called to do this. It's Jesus who's called to do this. Look at verse 5, um, if you would, with me. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, now the ESV does this translation like this, which is yours in Christ Jesus in verse 5. And most of your other translations, I think, are getting it a little bit better. It says, which is also in Christ Jesus. So have this amongst yourself, this mind amongst yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. And I think it's a little bit more accurate. We're called to have the very mind of Christ, and it's a command. That's our, that is, that's the obligations that are laid upon us, the good and holy obligations laid upon us. Have the same mind of Christ. These are the commands, they're good commands, and we are to pursue this mind, the very mind of Christ. Now, Jesus had this mind. Now, this is uh, something we need to continue to go back to pretty regularly. Christians and non-Christians hear these commands differently. The, the Christian in this room comes to Jesus, runs to Jesus, and is reminded that Jesus obeyed all these commands for us in our place. And so we come to these not under con condemnation. We come to these and we say, enjoy. We're going to have the mind of Christ. We're going to walk out of here not feeling beat down by the law of God. We're going to be empowered because of what Christ has done for us. And we're going to get these marching orders. And we're going to go out and say, you know, by, your, by the grace of God, I want to obey. If you're a non-Christian in this room, I want the, the, the law of God to do the work here. And because 
the way you're living your life, if you're a non-believer, is through selfish means. And you need to see how different your mind is than the very mind of Christ. And you need to feel the weight of your pride, and you need to see what Christ has done for you. And we're going to see that here in a second. So you need to be exposed by the law of God in a way that the people of God are, are experiencing the law of God differently. And so this mind that we are to have is the exact same mind of Christ. That's what we're to have. So what is the mind of Christ? Look at the mind of Christ in verse 6 and 7. We read it. We're going to read it again. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Jesus had this mind. Though he was in the form of God, which we're told is the same thing as being equal with God, I'm thinking here, if you circle the word form and then went ahead like seven words, you see equality with God, that word form and equality is important. He didn't consider that equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he was willing to submit to his father's command of the incarnation. And he emptied himself. This is so crucial. It's important that we understand what this means. That he emptied himself. You see that? But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, it's, it's wonderful that we're at Christmas time. It's the first Sunday of Advent, and this lines up perfectly, talking about the word becoming flesh, the very incarnation, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Uh, emptied. What does that mean? Well, there are some theories out there that really malign this. Uh, the kenosis theory is the idea that Jesus emptying himself was emptying himself of his divinity. And for him to come as a human, to be able to be fully human, he had to take his divine attributes and set those divine attributes aside, leaving them in the heavenly realm and step down into humanity. So for the word to become flesh, he had to leave behind and empty himself of himself being God. That is absolutely erroneous. We need to recognize that that is not what Jesus is doing here, what Paul is saying Jesus is doing here. He did not set aside his divinity. He remained fully God when he came in the flesh. Only God can do this. I want you to see how he emptied himself. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant. That's how he emptied himself. Not by setting his divinity aside and leaving it in the heavenly places. He emptied himself by taking on something. He took on the form of a servant. Form, again, means equality here. He didn't set aside his divinity. Only God could empty himself by taking on something. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what theologians call ransom. What does it mean to be fully God and fully man? The hypostatic union. <laughs> Jesus was fully God, and he became fully man. Now, this is the deep end of theology. If you want to get into I mean, some deep waters and really just have your mind blown, think about the immutability of God, how he is unchanging, eternally unchanging, and yet the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's, a, it's like trying to divide an old computer, I mean, an old uh, calculator, like a really old calculator, divided by zero, it gets all messed up, it can't compute, and there are certain things in the deep end of Christian theology where it's just like, I, I just have to accept what, what it says, I can't fully understand it. Jesus 
became flesh and dwelt among us. He was fully God and fully man, and he came to be an obedient man. Verse 8. Number seven, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Okay, remember form and equality, form and equality with God, form and fully man, fully God, fully man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus really was fully man. He really did come to be born and live a life as a man on this earth. He was really both in one. He became obedient to his heavenly father, even to the point of death. Never before the incarnation did Jesus, the son, the second person of the Trinity, ever have to obey. Because there is full unity in the Godhead. Father, son, and spirit in full unity, in community. But being born under his father's good law, Jesus now was in a position of obedience. He had to come and obey his heavenly father's good law. Now Jesus could have felt like this was condescending to him. In his condescension, he could have felt like it was condescending. I'm equality with God here and now I'm having to obey my father's law. Father, do you know who I am? I'm your son. He could have thought, I'm God. Now I have to obey, being called to serve the very ones I spoke into being. As a human being, he had to come and learn obedience through what he suffered. He had to grow in favor with God and man. Could have been embarrassing. We see this, this, the having the same mind of Christ here. The sermon title is The Humility of Christ. We think about the humility of Christ to do this, to come and serve the very ones he created, the very ones he formed, the very ones who had spit on him. The ones who did not deserve anything from him, he came to love. Could have been embarrassment. No, no, no. He obeyed. He obeyed his heavenly father's good law. He had this humble mind. Let's just think back through what we are supposed to be doing. He had this humble mind. He did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, he counted others more significant than himself, even though he was God in the flesh. He did not simply look at his own interests, but into the interests of others, your interests even to the point of death on the cross. In this passage, just in these few verses, we have the divinity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the law-keeping life of Christ, and the substitutionary death of Christ. And he did it all for the people he created who hated him in return. His creation rebelled against him, and yet the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we celebrate every Christmas. He took the punishment that they deserve, that we deserve, that I deserve, that you deserve. Therefore, listen to this. Here's a therefore. Because all these things are true. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
so that the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, because all of these things are true, that he is divine, that he is the God-man, that he is fully God and fully man, that he is the law-keeper, keeping the law of his heavenly Father, that he died a substitutionary death, that he had the humble mind, that he did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, that in humility he counted others more significant than himself, and he didn't simply look at his own interest, at his own interests, but in the interest of others. Therefore, God the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above all names. Jesus is the preeminent one. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And the banner that we wave and that the church has always waved is Jesus is Lord. That's the name assigned to him. Verse 11, that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the preeminent one. No one can compare to King Jesus. He did this that everyone would confess. Everyone, each and every, that truly all, each and every one would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And not only would they confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it says that they will bow their knee and declare it. He did this. This was all set in motion that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every single person who's ever been born and will ever die in the face of the earth will acknowledge universally the Lordship of Christ. Every single one. From the worst of the worst, the most vile person to the most prideful person, the most religious person who died without Christ. Every single person who's ever lived will declare with bowed knee that Jesus Christ is Lord. Universal worship. Not universal salvation. Universal recognition of who he is, not universalism. Hear me say this. People condemned also declaring with the redeemed people of God, Jesus is who he says he is. He is the preeminent one. Condemned ones will bow their knee as well and remain condemned. Each and every person will declare, that's why I will only bow to Jesus, period. Here's the eternal question. Universal worship, not universal salvation. Universal recognition of who Jesus is, not universalism. Here's the question. When do you acknowledge that? When do you acknowledge that? And here's what I want. I want people to acknowledge that fact before it's too late. Now, today is the day of salvation. Bow your knee today. Uh, people in our world that we know don't know Jesus, bow their knee today. Please, will you bow your knee to King Jesus today? I honestly, I think we're on the cusp of the breakdown of secularism in society. I really do. Where people see cities burning, they see everything falling apart and in shambles, and they realize this doesn't work. Socialism doesn't work. Newsflash, try it for the 50th time, it doesn't work. 
And as cities burn, and as Western civilization continues to crumble, I think, as I've said several weeks in a row, there's a great sifting happening, sifting, where the people of God are rising up, and those who are lukewarm are either going to run, or they're going to get right with God, and they're going to say, thus saith the Lord. And I think the world, the watching world, as they see everything and crumbles around them, I think people, I hope I get to see this. There are people, real people, just like us, who have got to see revivals like this in the past. You read about the first great awakening? We think, well, everybody, yeah, I was right. Everybody, revival is explainable back then. Friends, there, there, there's been a lot of evil for a long time. A long time. And God did a supernatural work, and you hear testimonies about that, and it is unbelievable. Friends, I want to experience that. And it's not going to happen being wishy-washy, being uh, false unity. Ah, you know, did God really say that? Not going to happen that way. It's going to happen like in Luther's day. He said, we did nothing. We slept and drank beer and preached the word, and the word did the work. It was God's word that changed people. And friends, if we're committed to rallying around, to living in humility by the grace of God, to saying this is what God has to say, with backbone and, hum and humility and love, and walking out of these doors and considering othering more significant than ourselves, we continue to be more and more a peculiar people. And I think the, the heads of people, like, huh, that's not burning down. They're thriving. Their people are... What in the world is going on there? Pockets of communities throughout the United States and throughout the world, loving Jesus and obeying him and thriving in the midst of what seems like chaos. The question is, when are you going to bow the knee? Bowing your knee after death is too late. It's too late. Hell is full of people who acknowledged the lordship of Christ too late. Lord Jesus, help us. We have a lifetime of work in front of us. And we get to walk out in joy as we think about selfish motives or ambitions. We think about situations this week where we put ourselves in front of others. We don't have to feel condemned this morning. We can look to Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's right now perfecting us and changing us. We can experience no condemnation, keep our head up and walk out these doors and say, God, help me this week. I want to lay my life down for the good of others. I'm going to give my life for them. I want to have the same mind of Christ. I want to walk in humility. I thank you for what Christ has done for me. I thank you that I can walk out of here in freedom because of what Christ has done for me. And if there's anybody that doesn't know you today, from the youngest in the room to the oldest in the room, God, I pray that you would grant repentance. I pray that they would willingly just come to you and say, Jesus, have me, have all of me. I am sorry. I have sinned against you. Change me from the inside out. I'll follow you all the days of my life by your grace. Holy Spirit, lead us. I trust that you're going to. It's going to be our joy to sing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.